Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And here again, we have been reading in the story of the Exodus of God getting his people out of slavery in Egypt, and yet we are nine chapters in, um, and the people are still in slavery in Egypt, and we are in the middle of a lot of the plagues that are coming, just one after another. It will be ten in all, um, and, at, and at this point, they just the plagues keep coming, and the people keep staying where they are. So this is Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word, which you've given to us. God, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to think and to understand. And God, that you would give us hearts that are soft and ready to be changed by your word and by your spirit today, that we would be made even more today into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not the animals belonging to the Israelites. But none of the, not one of the animal no, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Turning into our New Testament gospel reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. As Jesus has continued going around and teaching and healing and giving signs of uh, who he is, there are people who do not want to accept it and do not want to accept him. And so we have um, some Pharisees and some Herodians who would have been not seeing an awful lot of things uh, eye to eye. They wouldn't be on the same page in a whole lot of ways. And yet here they team up uh, to try to catch Jesus in his words, as it says here. So this is Mark twelve thirteen through 17. It says, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. As we come to our sermon text uh, this morning, just fair warning, it's super weird. That's, that's what it is. The images that are bizarre, they are graphic, they are disturbing, and that just is what it is. Uh, I will say, though, that the images that we get here are really a mashup of a lot of images we've gotten prior to this in the Bible. And so this is the kind of thing, I was thinking about this, um, if you were to hear the word repent, and you're like, you've never heard it before, and you're like, okay, repent, I'm supposed to repent, what is that, what could that possibly mean? Oh, I know, uh, let's see, I've heard, I've heard of re before, that just means to do something again, and pent, that's like, well, I know a lot of words that have pent in it, and it means five, right? So I'm going I'm to do five things again and again, that's what it means to repent, right? No, not even close. <laughs> that is just butchering the whole concept. Um, and so then you start going, well, okay, maybe there's a better way to figure this out. Well, let's see how this word gets used in other places before I just start trying to take it apart this way. And so you go and you look at places where the word repent gets used all through the Bible, and you go, oh, it has nothing to do with doing five things again and again. It has to do with just turning around and going a different direction. So you're going away from God then you need to repent, and that means to turn around and face him again. Change the direction of your life. That's what repent means. And it, you get there by looking at the context. Even if you've never seen a dictionary definition, you can just look at how it gets used over and over again. You kind of figure that out. When we get to Revelation, it's the same kind of thing when we get to all these bizarre images. You can take these bizarre images and you can go, wow, that's a weird image. I wonder what that means. And you can just go in all kinds of directions and end up in a mess. Or you can go, well, let's see. How have these same kinds of images been used throughout the Bible to this point? And does that help us understand this? Yeah, it does. Um, and so I'm going to read this first, just chapter 9. We're going to read it, and you're going to hear all of the bizarre, strange, disturbing stuff. And I can assure you, we do not have the time this morning to fully unpack all of it. But when you see things in here that are bizarre, yeah, <laughs> see, before just running wild with that, uh, see if there are places in the Bible that do give you some, uh, some help in uh, figuring out what this is about. Okay, so here we go. I'm just going to start. <laughs> I, I want to just give you so much context that you are just right in as we start, but it would take an hour and a half to properly set the context so we're just going to start. Here we go. Chapter 9. The first, no, the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. There you go. To be fair, I warned you. <laughs> That's super weird stuff, right? That is very bizarre imagery. It is the kind of imagery we're not typically used to. And when you hear it, you know, I hope that you're able to kind of picture some of this as maybe what this might look like. And I hope that as you try to do it, you realize you kind of run into some problems trying to picture it all at the same time. Like your brain starts getting things jumbled up together because that's kind of what's going on here. What we are seeing here are images that are that have been used throughout the Bible, but they're being just layered and layered and layered on top of each other. And so you're seeing it kind of all coming together. And this is where we are in the book of Revelation. We're seeing in Revelation the culmination of everything the whole story has been about. And so as we've gone through the whole thing from Genesis on, it's like every bit along the way, there's been more and more that has been revealed until we get to the book of Revelation where we see it uh, more clearly. But the way that we see things more clearly in Revelation is actually through these crazy images that go back and invite us to recall the whole of the story as it then brings us forward here. So, um, and this is where, yeah, we just love to go through all of it. Uh, But here's where we're going to go. I want us to first talk about the uh, the trumpets themselves. This is started with the fifth trumpet, and we're like, well, what happened to the other four? Well, we looked at those last week. But we see these uh, trumpets coming in as this part of uh, the judgment of God on the evil and wickedness in the world. We saw people who have been killed because of their faith in Jesus, who have been praying and calling out to God and saying, how long, how long is this going to go on? God, aren't you ever going to do something about all the wickedness and the evil in the world? Aren't you going to do something? And what we see is that God is going to do something. 
that it doesn't just, the evil doesn't just get to go on forever, that he really is still on the throne and that he does, he is aware of what's going on and he is going to do something about it. And with the uh, trumpets, when these come in, this should be like, as soon as we hear there are these trumpets, it should remind us of some trumpets in the past. If you, can you think of any trumpets in the past in, um, anywhere in the Bible that trumpets get mentioned? Should be a couple places, actually. No? Okay. Moving on. Just kidding. Uh, no, think about the Battle of Jericho, right? This one comes right up. And there, you've got the number seven all over the place in that story. And here we have seven trumpets. And so we should immediately be going, oh, yeah, there's that. There's also uh, Gideon uh, with his army, and they're blowing the trumpets. But with all of this, there's like this um, this call to action, this uh, call to alertness. There's this like a wake-up call. But it's also this judgment is at hand kind of thing. This is what's coming. And so when we see these trumpets, it's, hey, God is going to act to uh, do away with the wickedness and evil. And we see this actually even as part of the response to the people who have been praying back in what we were looking at with the seven seals earlier on. But here we have these trumpets and, uh, and we see this kind of increasing judgment that is coming until we get to the end of the cycle. And we look at this and it's kind of the same thing that, um, Jesus talked about with the birth pangs, right? How you see, uh, with, with a woman who is pregnant and she is going to give birth at some point, but it's not like everything goes along just fine until the day that she is giving birth. And it's like, Oh, now I'm feeling it. No, she feels it for quite a while before, uh, the baby's birthday. And, uh, and so with that, this is like one of the images that Jesus gives us as this is how it's going to be as, uh, the new creation is brought in. And there's going to be a lot of trouble and distress and hardship and, uh, and there's going to be pain and suffering throughout. And yet it's all for a purpose. It's, it's going somewhere, but it also increases as you go. So the closer you get to the birthday, <laughs> the closer the contractions are, the more intense they are, uh, that kind of thing. And that's the same sort of thing that we saw with the seals as they are open. We see the same thing with the trumpets. We're going to see the same thing with the bowls. And uh, last week I mentioned the movie Dunkirk as a way of looking at time. And if you haven't seen it, it's an interesting movie. Um, but the way that it deals with time is it actually films uh, what, what happens over the course of a week, what happens over the course of a day, and what happens over the course of an hour, but it keeps cutting back and forth between one and the other. And so if you don't realize that's what's going on, like I didn't the first time I watched it, I was very confused. You watch it again, realize that's what they're doing. Oh, okay, now it makes a lot of sense. Same kind of thing when we're seeing uh, the seals and trumpets and bowls, that it is. it does seem like... We watch the seals come through, and when, when you get to the end of the seals, it's like, well, this is final, final judgment. That's it. That's it. And then we go and we look at the trumpets. And you're like, oh, how do you have something after final judgment? And it's like, well, what if this is the one that's covering a week? The next one's the one that's covering like uh, an hour, and the next one's the one that covers like a day, or not a day, the day, and then an hour. There we go. And it seems like that makes 
a lot of sense out of how these do kind of layer on top of each other. And as you do get closer and closer, it gets more and more intense. Um, and then kind of the ends sort of all line up with this final, final judgment. And so here we are at the fifth and sixth of the seven trumpets. So we're getting right towards the end on how intense it is, etc. And with this, we get all these... Oh, one other thing I was going to say on that. There's a... When we're thinking about this in terms of where are we in time and it says this happens after this or whatever, remember this, this is a vision that John is given and I heard someone, uh, or read someone said uh, one time that we have to keep in mind that what we are getting from John is a sequence of visions, not a vision of sequences. Does that make sense? And so if you're describing what you saw in the movie Dunkirk, you'd be like, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And that doesn't mean that it happened that order chronologically. That's the order you saw it. <laughs> but it's jumping back and forth in time. And I think that is a helpful uh, thing to remember here that John is giving us a sequence of visions, not a vision of sequences. But as we get to the fifth and sixth trumpets, and we do get these bizarre images, are you all familiar with the book of Joel? Some of you are, especially those that uh, I just taught your Sunday school class like 30 minutes ago. So in, in the book of Joel, it's a minor prophet, and it has a lot of talk about locusts, a lot of talk about locusts, the sun getting dark and all this kind of thing. And uh, locusts, both as locusts initially, and then also as a good image for an invading army that is going to uh, really do destruction in the land. And as you go through, you read, go ahead and read the first two chapters of Joel when you get home today, and then come back to Revelation 9, and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, John is so riffing on Joel. <laughs> but it's not just Joel. It's also the, the plague of locusts in Exodus. And it's, uh, and it's also what's going on in the Battle of Jericho with the trumpets. And it's also, and it's also, and it's also. And you kind of layer all these things. There's things from Deuteronomy in here. There's things from Jeremiah. There's things from Proverbs. And it all just gets mashed up together to give us this image. An image where things get really bad. And they get really bad specifically for who? For those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And this is what we've looked at earlier. Of, uh, we saw this whole, I heard the number is 144,000 and then I looked. And, who, and it's this, who is it that's able to stand? Who is it that's able to survive when all this coming judgment comes? That's those who are in Christ, right? And um, and when you think about it, that's a pattern we've seen throughout the Bible. So think about this. When the flood come, flood came, all the way back in early Genesis, who is it that is saved through the flood? Noah and his family, yeah? Okay, move on forward a little bit. And you get to later in Genesis where you have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who is it that's saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's Lot and his family, yeah? And then you move on farther in the story and you get to 
The Exodus itself. Who is it that's saved out of Egypt? It's Abraham's family, right? You're starting to see this saved as a part of a family kind of thing. Then you get to the, the Battle of Jericho we've already referenced. And in that Battle of Jericho, who is it that's saved? It's Rahab and her family, right? This is starting to pick up this pattern that just keeps on going. I'll leave you to see if you can come up with any others. But it's the same thing here. When you expand this whole thing out worldwide, who is it that's saved from the judgment on not just the wickedness of this particular place or that, but on the whole world? Who is it that is saved when all the wickedness is going to be destroyed? It's those who are a part of Jesus' family, right? That's who's saved. It's those who are in Christ, those who are part of his family. The difference here, though, is it's not a biological family. And so we're not tracing our genealogy to see if we can go all the way back and connect in with Jesus that way. It's not how it works. Nobody can do that. He didn't have any kids. <laughs> and so instead, what is it? This is where Jesus' uh, mother and brothers come, and sisters come to him. People are like, oh, Jesus, basically your family's here. He basically responds, who, who is my family? It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. This is what it uh, comes down to. It's those who are actually following God in Christ this is who's in Christ. This is the, the message throughout the whole thing. And, uh, and here's what is really bizarre. As we get into the, the fifth trumpet sounds, and we have these uh, locust beings that come and tormenting folks, when we get to the sixth angel, we have all this destruction of uh, a third of mankind is destroyed. We have... Um, the images of red and blue and sulfur and they, they have the plagues of fire and smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. We've already seen that Jesus is depicted earlier as someone who has a sword coming out of his mouth. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we see this image of the Word of God proceeding from the mouth of Jesus. And here, that's not what we see. What we see here is fire and smoke and sulfur that is coming out of their mouths to destroy. And with all of this coming destruction on evil, if you go back to the book of Joel, the, the whole point of the locusts that are coming and then the army that's coming that looks like locusts and is so destructive, the whole point is the word we started with. Repent. <laughs> which means turn around. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. This destruction on evil ought to wake us up, especially if we are those who have joined forces with the evil in this world. And if there is any way in which we have joined up with the evil of this world, when we start seeing, hey, destruction on evil is coming, we ought to go, uh-oh, that means me. We need to turn around. We need to Repent. And this is where it gets so crazy. In the book of Joel, we have the locusts come, the, and, and the people do. They repent. They turn around. They go back to God. We also have another locust story, which uh, 
mentioned briefly, this is in the plagues of Egypt, right? And when the locusts come there, do the people of Egypt repent? No. And so here, we're kind of left wondering, I mean, before we get to the final verses, we're left wondering, is this going to do it? Like, are the people actually going to repent now? Are they going to repent like they did in the day of Joel? Or are they going to harden their hearts like they did in Egypt? And we get to at the end of chapter 9. And it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So what's coming? I mean, just common sense. What's coming? When the destruction is at the doorstep, the judgment on evil and wickedness is right there. We see this pattern over and over again. There are those who repent and are saved, and there are those who harden their hearts, who dig in their heels and say, I don't care what. I am not going to repent. And then we see what follows. Salvation for those who humble themselves, who repent, and who turn to God and call out to him. And destruction for those who absolutely refuse and continue to try to fight against God and everything he's doing in this world. We will see more of this as we go forward in the book. But for today, I hope this is at least enough of a reminder for us that God is on the throne. He is the one who is going to get rid of all the evil and wickedness in this world and therefore allow us to do some time of self-examination to see where maybe we need to repent of the... um, the ways that we worship what should not be worshipped, the ways that we do what should not be done. If you are reading the last verse about uh, repenting of their murders, their magical arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts, and you're reading through that and going, good thing I don't do any of those things ever, I would direct you to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about things like murder You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, right? That this goes much deeper than just the kind of acts that first come to mind when we read this. We also tend to have, tend to have part of our human nature, a way of excusing ourselves from things we shouldn't be excused from. And so when we hear that there are the people who are doing the bad things and there are the people who are doing the good things, we tend to automatically put ourselves in the category of the people who are doing the good things. And it's the other people who are doing the bad things. I think this is why Jesus again and again gets onto the people who think they're the ones doing the good things. 
and says, you're the ones who need to repent. There are people who are doing the bad things, who know they're doing the bad things, and they're repenting like crazy. (laughs) But it's those who are self-deceived, who think they're the ones doing the good things, that need to repent. And so for uh, for us today, this should be a... um, I mean, the trumpets are sounding. <laughs> you got the alarms are going off. Let's not hit snooze today. Let's wake up and pay attention to what God is doing and what he's promised he will do. And let's repent. Turn around in any and every area where we need to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.